We've been talking all this year about the elevated life. Christ came that we could be elevated. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. More recently, we've been talking about soul detox. That is sometimes why we're not elevated. You notice that some people, the longer they live, the sweeter they become. You notice that others, the longer they live, the more <laughs> mean they get to be. I won't be like wine. I won't get better as I get older. But it doesn't always happen that way. They discovered a Greek ship at the bottom of the Mediterranean. It had apparently sunk in a storm. Archaeologists went down and excavated the ship using scuba gear. And they found these Greek empora, these urns, and they were full of wine. And somebody thought, if old wine is better, this stuff is 2,000 years old. It'll really be good. They opened one of those urns and took a sip and spat it out. It was pure vinegar. I know some people like that. <laughs> you're, don't look at me. You're thinking of somebody right now. <laughs> Amen. You know why? You know why we get that way? As we go through life, we go through stuff. And every once in a while, we need to experience soul detox. Or that builds up inside. Which is why Proverbs 4 and 23 said, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I want to show you a place in the Scripture where there were toxic responses, toxic relationships, that I've never heard preached about in my life. Yet, when I got saved many years ago and read this for the first time, I looked at this and I immediately knew there was something wrong in what was being said and related to me. Not wrong in the sense of the story wasn't correct, but wrong in the sense in that what was being related shouldn't have happened this way. I want to especially ask that the men pay close attention to the scriptural reading this morning. I kind of get the feeling that many times ladies will pick up on this kind of thing and you'll see it without me having to point it out to you. Genesis 34, verses 1 through 10. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shisham, son of Hamor the Havite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, a daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shisham said to his father, Hamor, Give me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. And Shisham's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shisham had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shisham has, given, has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. And marry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. We can settle among us. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, acquire property in it. Notice anything wrong? A little girl raised in a family of boys, she's the only daughter, she has 12 brothers, does what any little girl would do in those circumstances. There's a village nearby. They're staying in that area. They're not permanent residents. They're only passing through. They're nomadic in nature. They have herds that have to follow the grass, as it were, the pasture. And she decides to go into the village to visit the other little girls. And a guy there sees her. He is the son of the ruler of that area. 
and using his position and power and prestige, nobody is going to stop him. He attacks and assaults this little girl, rapes her, and sends her home. Now he begins to develop feelings for her. Jacob is at home and his little girl comes in the front door weeping, eyes swollen and red, her clothing torn, and she tells her dad what happened. Now this is where the story, in my opinion, really gets off track. Jacob didn't do a thing. I say that this is completely out of character with what I know the character of fathers to be. I'm a dad. I'm kind of like the Lord. I have one only begotten son, Jonathan. But I have a daughter too. And I can tell you from experience, having raised both a boy and a girl, that we raise our boys differently than we raise our girls, and we raise our girls differently than we do our boys. Doesn't mean we love either one more or less, but we raise our boys with this notion in mind that somewhere in their future, they're going to have to assume the responsibilities of leadership and protect a family. And they're going to have to become responsible enough to take care of a family. And that means sometimes you've got to pay the pain whether you feel like it or not. You've got to take the bullet for your family. You've got to pay the price to see they succeed. And to be able to acquaint them with the necessary emotional, spiritual, mental toughness they need, we sometimes intentionally allow our sons to experience a little more pain than we might allow our daughters to walk through. Our daughters, we think that they're going to get married someday, hopefully to a good guy who's going to protect them the way we have and we'll pass on that role of being protector to our son-in-law. And our daughter won't need to go through that. So what we do is we try to spare our little girls from as much pain as we possibly can. The boy, unfortunately, being a man, sometimes you just have to suck it up, and we try and tell our sons that. Be strong. Don't want you to go through anything, but you may have to someday, so it's better to learn how to deal with it now. And I can tell you, having one daughter, that this would not have been my response. And I don't think there's a man in this building that would have responded this way. You're going to do nothing and your little girl comes in with her dress ripped and her face swollen from crying. And then notice what, ha what happens next. This boy, as I said, decides he loves this girl. Now she didn't do anything seductive, anything to cause this, anything to provoke a response. She just went to visit the other little girls in the village. You got that? And this boy goes to his daddy after assaulting her and says, Daddy, I won't marry that girl. Go talk to her daddy for me. And the dad and the elders of the clan come and they sit down, which was the custom in their day and still is in Africa, other places in, in the world, the Middle East, for example. And the two fathers con converse Usually it's not even the fathers. Usually one of the elders will speak on behalf of the fathers. And this boy's father communicates the idea that his son wants to marry this girl and says, you can come. You don't own property here. You can intermarry with our daughters and you can own property. And Jacob begins to plan a wedding for his daughter with this, this scallywag. Now tell me that's, that's right. And in fact, the scripture says this in verse 19 of Genesis 34, that this boy was the best one of his whole family. Did you see that? He was more honorable than all the household of his father. This boy is a sexual predator. And Jacob's getting ready to marry his daughter off to this guy. Welcome him to, into his, his home. And worse, he's getting ready to give his daughter to that family, and this boy is the best one of the whole bunch. Now tell me that's not messed up. If that's the best there is in the family, what in the world are the rest like? 
You, you see anything wrong yet? And while they're planning a wedding, somebody is told her brothers, and they come in, and they could have been even several days away because they have to follow the pasture. And they come in, leaving their flocks and herds with the servants, and they're angry. And they get there, and daddy is actually sitting down having a powwow on conditions of marriage with the guy who did all this. And they pull daddy aside and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. And they said, we need to fix this. Now, I'm not talking about seeking vengeance. We have legal authorities. And if you've had bad things happen in your life, I want to right now dispel any notion that you need to go out and, and take matters into your own hands. That'll just get you into nothing but trouble. But I can tell you this, they didn't have a sheriff's department and a Houston City Police and Texas State Rangers back in those days. They didn't have it. And they look at daddy and, and say, daddy, we've got to get justice for our sister. That's your daughter, daddy. And you're going to marry her off to this guy who did this to her? If it starts right here, where is it going from there? And Jacob says, shh, 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 wait a minute, quiet. Don't rock the boat. Don't make any waves. We're strangers here. They aren't, and now remember, I've already told you, they're not permanent residents. They're passing through. Two or three years, they're going to be gone. They're just grazing their flocks through. And Jacob says, we don't want to upset these people. And these boys get together, and they realize that dad is implacable. He's not going to change his mind. And you know what they do? They pretend to go along, and they devise a strategy where justice can be served. And they tell their dad, okay, but remember, Daddy, we're anointed. And it could have been this very anointing, in fact, that, drove, that, that drew this boy to this girl initially. Because there was an anointing passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to the children. And, Dad, remember, one of the conditions for us to carry this anointing is that God told our grandfather Abraham that every male of our family had to be circumcised and you couldn't be a part of our family unless you were circumcised. And dad said, you're right. Jacob said, that, that's true. They said, this is the condition with, upon which, in terms of, upon which we will give our consent for our, our sister to marry this, this, this guy. Is that those men of that family have to agree to be circumcised. And they went out and presented the plan, and the guy said, yeah, we'll do that. The boy said, yeah, I'll get circumcised. The guys of the clan all agreed, and they were circumcised. And on the third day, when those men were still sore and in recovery, led by Simeon the eldest and by Levi, who would be the future of the tribe of Levi, future the tribe of Levi, the Levites, the priests would come from him, the, the, the ones that led in worship. So you have Simeon representing wisdom and leadership and you have Levi representing the righteousness of God. They lead the other ten and swoop down upon that village and kill every person that is there. And Jacob, notice his response. Instead of saying, thanks guys, I didn't know how to handle that. His response is, You've made the people of the land hate us. In fact, look at this in Genesis 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. If, 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 if. I personally believe anybody with any sense that was a father would have looked and said something needed to be done about that and probably would have shaken the hands of, that, of Jacob's sons. But Jacob's worried about if they get together, they're going to wipe us out. And he's trying to please people. He's not even going to be around three years from now and letting the ones that really matter be completely walked over. Oh, you get my point now? And so I want to speak today from the subject, if it's this wrong, it just ain't right. It's just not right. And what do I mean by that? One of the greatest sources of pain in life is caused by toxic relationships. 
This time of the year, you especially see that. I hope everybody's smiling and you got mistletoe and chestnuts rusting on the open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose. He certainly was nipping at something this morning. Amen. It was cold outside. But you know what? This is one of the worst times emotionally for a lot of people, not just because they've lost loved ones, and tonight is the embrace service where we celebrate our loved ones that have gone on that we miss this holiday season. But this is one of the roughest seasons of the year because at this time of the year, depression spikes, suicide spike, attempted suicide spike, threats of divorce spike. Tension in the home goes out the roof. You know why? Because all of those people that are in unfulfilling relationships, whether it's family, coworkers, friends, whatever it may be, look around at all of the other people that look so happy and draw a contrast between where they are and where these happy people are. And they say, something's wrong and I just ain't going to live like this no more. I'm not living this way any longer. I want to help you to not blow apart your own life. <laughs> And make mistakes that are in, going to end up destroying what you have good that's going on. You say, I'm not going to do anything like that. I know that. But I want to help other people be able to deal with you too. Hey. Just lift your hand and say, I, I got this for it. I haven't even prayed. Just say in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to need it before I get done here today. Those of you who know me know I love funny commercials. Y'all know that about me? You figured that out because I've shown so many? Some of the funniest out there are the Geico commercials. I love those. I'd pay money to watch those. One of my very favorite is this one. It's the antelopes and the Serengeti. Bring the lights down and put this up. Have you seen this one? There's the light. Look who's back. Again. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. We can see you, Carl. We can totally see you. Come on, you're better than this. All that prowling around. Yeah, you're the king of the jungle. Have you thought about going vegan, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> you know, folks who save hundreds of dollars by switching to Geico sure are happy. How happy are they, Jimmy? Happier than an antelope with night vision goggles. Nice. Get happy. Yeah, you get that? Happier than an antelope with night vision goggles. I want to tell you this. If you live in the Serengeti, you're going to have to deal with lions. You're not going to make them go away. And I want you to know about toxic people, you're not going to make them go away either. We're trying to fix folk around us, and even God looks down and said, I gave up on that a long time ago. Instead, I want you to know how to develop a strategy to deal with the lions in your Serengeti. Another story before I really get any deeper in this. Do you hear about the German shepherd and the panther? German shepherd got lost in the heart of the forest and it was dark and he was hungry and tired and began to get afraid and sure enough, he spotted moving through the bushes, stalking him, a panther. That meant bad news. And he quickly realized that it wasn't a match for the panther, and he thought, what can I do? German shepherds are very smart dogs. He knew he couldn't outrun the panther either. And just then he spied some old bones on the ground in a clearing, and he walked over, pulled those old bones together of an old animal that had died some time ago, crouched down with his back to the panther. And as the panther crept in for the keel and was about to spring, the German shepherd growled, smacked his lips, and said, boy, this panther I'm eating sure is good. <laughs> I'm still hungry, though. I wish I had another one. And that panther that was poised to spring, unsprung, Amen. And as the panther was stalking back off into the forest to get away from this terrible German shepherd, a squirrel 
that had been terrified of the panther for years saw what was going on, quickly ran up and said, Mr. Panther, don't you believe that German shepherd? That's not the bones of a panther he killed and ate. He's trying to deceive you. You come with me. We'll go back there. And you can have that German shepherd as a meal and then you and I'll be friends from here on out because I helped you with this. So he climbs on the panther's back and together they go and the panther is creeping back up on the German shepherd. And the German shepherd spies the movement and sees them and figures out what's going on. And so just before the, the panther springs, the German shepherd crouches back down by the bones with his back to the panther and smacks his lip again his lips again and says, man, I'm hungry. I wonder where that squirrel is at. What's taking him so long? He said he knew where there was another panther and he was gonna go get him and bring him here so I could eat him too. You understand what I mean? You're gonna have some panthers in your woods. And you might even be a panther in somebody else's. And I want to help you develop strategies to deal with this. This story of Jacob to me is just incredible. And I'll just say this and I'll move quickly to my point. In case you don't think the Bible is relevant, you ever hear anybody say that? Tell me if this is not one of the most relevant stories you've ever read in all of your studies of, of human relationships anywhere. Imperfect relationships cause us pain and they can exist in our family. It can be the person that you share the bed with that lives under your roof that you're in a toxic relationship with. It can be your children. It can be your coworker. It can be your next door neighbor. I want to tell you today how to develop night vision goggles. Number one, the key to understanding a toxic relationship is to know that toxic people are toxic because they themselves have been through a lot of pain. Jacob is reacting this way because he's been through some stuff. I don't need to re-preach what I've already preached in this series, but he's been through some stuff in his own life. And Jacob is now more concerned about pleasing the Canaanites than he is his own daughter and sons, which is one of the most true defining characteristics of a toxic relationship is when you have somebody in your life that you just completely overlook and you're more worried about what these out here think than those here who have got your back, there's something wrong in that that just isn't right. Can somebody in the building say amen? And if you have people in your life like that, let me explain to you what's actually happening. You say, they're taking me for granted. Yes. You say, they don't care for me. Wrong. They do. The reason that they're more worried about somebody else than they are you is they think, I've already got you. You're already here. And so it's those out there. And they become worried about people who don't matter and ignore the people who do. Whoa, here's a man's little girl that ought to be what his life is wrapped up in, but he's worried about some guys that live in the next village and his daughter's gonna grow up someday and guess what, like girls do, she's gonna marry a man just like dear old dad that's not gonna take care of her when push comes to shove either. And then her children will be raised in that context and the dysfunction will be perpetuated from generation to generation. Jacob, do you realize what you're doing here? Forget about those people out there. You got something going on right here that needs to be corrected and needs to be addressed. He was more concerned about the Canaanites than he was his own family. Some would argue that from a position of wisdom and maturity, he was saying we need to uh, ignore this and let this go because they're more numerous than we are. I just want to tell you something. Right is right regardless of the numbers that are on the side of what's right or wrong. 
And God doesn't take a straw poll and count hands before he decides what's right and wrong. Amen. Here's what you need to, to understand too. The key to fixing a toxic relationship is not to look outside, it's to look inside. Jacob is looking outside. Let's fix this situation with these people. Uh-uh, Jacob, it's not them that need to be fixed, it's you. Like I already told you, you're not gonna fix every line in your Serengeti. You're not gonna take care of every panther in your forest. They're gonna be there whether you like it or not. But what you can do is fix you. Didn't Natasha just teach that when she was here with us from Hebrews 12? Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. You remember her teaching? Her spin on this and her take on this, and it was good, and I believe it's the truth, is that when you've been through trouble in your life and it turns into bitterness, that bitterness you project out to others around you. Your self-feelings get projected into your relationships, your perceptions of who you are or what you mirror to other people, and guess what? They don't question your judgment about yourself. They accept it and mirror it back to you. Amen. So the key to changing it is not to fix them. It's to fix what's in you. This root of bitterness springing up and many are defiled. The actual Greek word defile means to contaminate, to taint, to spoil. That's heavy duty. You mean I'm spoiling relationships because I haven't processed stuff that I've lived through in my, yeah, that's right. So the key to fixing toxic relationships is not trying to go around blaming this one and that one and he did me wrong and this one did me bad and, and this one said this and somebody else did that. Uh-uh, the key is to look in the mirror and say, God, it's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. That's standing in the need of prayer. Somebody in the building say amen. One of the keys also is to understand that in fixing the problem in you, that we need to, to realize what true holiness is. Hebrews 12 and 14 said, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness in a religious context usually means a lot of stuff that it doesn't really mean to God. One of our pastors this morning, he's sitting right over here, came by my office, Irvin came by my office and he got, got some stubble going on, you know? And he said, Pastor, do you have a fix for this? Because there's some gray. Now I know what you were suggesting, but I want you to know you were wrong. I'm not using anything. I got what I got natural. He's really wanting to know what my formula is. It's not Grecian, it's not any, it's not, French, it's nothing. I, it's just me. It's what I got. Y'all forgive me if I have a little fun. I was raised in a church where we were so spiritual you could not have a beard or facial hair. Seriously, y'all remember those days? That was holiness. Now here's Jesus who obviously had a beard because the scripture said they plucked his beard. Jesus couldn't even be allowed to be a member in most Christian churches that I grew up around in those days. You got a beard, you can't join, but I'm Christ. I don't care who you are. You're still not becoming a member here unless you get a razor and shave. Yeah, but don't you, I'm the savior. Yeah, well, go save yourself first. You know, I, that'd be the kind of stuff that we heard. That's not holiness. It's a mistake to believe that holiness has something to do with your externals. Holiness is inside. It's internal. Amen. I've often used this to make my point. You can go stand in a garage all day long, go beep, beep, and that's not gonna make you a car. You understand? 
A synonym for holiness is wholeness. Spelled W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. Wholeness. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus came to fix and make whole what was broken in our lives. And this is why we can worship and go into the holiday season loving God and declaring, oh, come, let us adore him. We can do that because Christ makes us whole. And this is what the secret to fixing that root of bitterness actually consists of, becoming whole in him. Amen. Let me give you quickly 12 kinds of toxic people that you must learn to deal with in your life. And then I close. 12 lines in your Serengeti. Number one is the volcano. You have any of those in your life? This person carries around a lot of anger just under the surface. And sooner or later, the volcano is going to blow spewing hot lava all over everybody. Their rage is always out of proportion to what is happening to them. You'll end up walking around on eggshells if you don't know how to deal with the volcanoes in your life. You say, how do I deal with the volcano in my life? This is what you tell them. Honey, I love you a bushel and a peck but drop the rage and turn a page. (laughs) Number two is the charmer. This individual is also known as a sociopath. (laughs) This is the type of person that might appear attractive and know all the right things to say and be ever so charming Amen, but their whole reason for being charming is to con their way into getting what they want. You don't have anybody like that in your life, do you? They learn how to run game. Oh, yeah, they do. They lie with a smile on their face. They cheat, they steal, they manipulate, they exploit. They break as many rules as they think they can get away with, all with great finesse. I know I do. Thank you for telling me, but I know. (laughs) I got that one, amen. Yeah, without a drop of remorse. The third kind of line in your Serengeti is the narcissist. This is the person that values themselves above everybody else. Initially, they might appear nice, but as you get to know them, you realize that their needs and feelings are the only ones that matter. It's not that yours are a distant second. It's yours are not even a blip on the radar. Amen. They'll let you down if you need their support because it's all about me. And they'll turn on you angrily if you inadvertently get in the way of their perceived needs being met. How dare you? The fourth is the drama queen. Uh Uh-huh, you you met her. I know you did. There's some of you got a picture in your mind right now. And understand this could be male or female. This character needs to be the center of attention or to create a crisis everywhere they go. They walk in a room where there's peace. 30 seconds later, everybody... And they're sitting back enjoying the show. Amen. They have fun. They often pit one person against another and then sit back and watch what happens. Number five, the fifth line in your Serengeti is the cynic. This is an angry, bitter person who sees the bad in everything. You have any of those coming for Christmas dinner? They see the bad in everything, but their attitude is really just a psychological defense mechanism to protect them against vulnerability. They keep everybody at arm's length 
by finding the wrong in everything. That don't match. You try to be nice to them and bring them a cake. Huh, I've been on a diet trying to lose weight and look what you go do. <laughs> Amen. They get their value from pointing out other people's problems and flaws. They think they're the only ones intelligent enough to see those. Uh-huh. The cynic. The problem is that in trying to protect themselves from being hurt, they're hurting everybody around them. Then number six, there is the complainer. This individual blames everybody else for what is going wrong in their life. Oh, they're the ones making the decisions. But they're blaming you for the problem that results from their decision. Mm -hmm. Because they refuse to be accountable for the consequences of their choices, they keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over, ad infinitum, accusing those around them of causing them all the suffering. And then, how many of you have this one coming for Christmas? There's the peacock. They're so proud and they're so high above the rest of us. You know what I'm talking about? This is a pretentious person. They're a name dropper. You know, Barack and I just the other day, Barack who? Oh, you know, Barack Obama. Well, we're like that. They saw him on TV. That's as close as they ever got to him. Amen. They use you as a rung in their ladder to success. They'll stop at nothing to have the money, the power, and the status, and the prestige they crave. Social interactions to them are only for strategic purposes and designed to help them maximize access to the lifestyle they need and aspire to. They believe that you use people and love things. They've not learned that you love people, or, or rather, you love people and use things. And then number eight, there's the wild child. That's the rebel. Every family's got one, right? Got, you, you got somebody in your mind right now. Amen. There's the rule breaker. They're the nonconformist. They're the guy that even though the 60s ended 40 years ago, still wear tie-dyed shirts and bell bottoms and have a ponytail. You know what I'm talking about. The rebel in the family. Amen. And no matter what you are, they're against it. They're the ones that are more insightful. They're more illuminated than anybody else. Their brain is so, their mind is so open, their brain fell out on the floor. And, <laughs> but they value that in themselves. Amen. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but they disregard everybody around them with their recklessness. And even though they're willing to suffer the consequences of their impulsiveness, if it were only them doing the suffering, they'd be fine. But it's not. They hurt the others around them too with their impulsive behavior. And then there's the dreamer. <laughs> you have any of those in your family? Co-workers? Friends? Dreamer. This person always has the next big secret of success just at their fingertips. They've got the latest hot stock tip. I just tell you right now, I'm stock tipped out. Don't bring anybody bring me any stock tips for the rest of my life. Amen. They got all the solutions, but have you noticed that it never plans or it never turns out the way they plan? They're full of grand ideas, but either they don't follow through or don't think things through because oftentimes what ends up happening is a societal or a social or a family or a financial disaster. Now, I've, I've, you know, I've got people like that in my family. No disrespect, I hope they never get this, this CD or this, download this podcast. I got a brother that gave me a hot stock tip one time. $15,000, Rich. Man, it'll turn into, man, it's going to make money, 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 money. And he's a good guy. $15,000. I made the mistake of investing. And it grew all the way from fifteen dollars to $10,000. <laughs> oh, wait, it gets better than that. 
I got on the phone and I called him and I said, hey, what's going on with this? Oh, don't you worry. I know the CEO and the president. It's getting ready to take off. Just hold on to it. In fact, if you lose your money, I'll give it back to you. That's how convinced I am that it's going to do good. I got a statement just the other day from the investment firm that had that in, was holding that investment. My $15,000 is now worth 0.00. I'm hot stock tipped out. Oh, and by the way, the one that said, you know, if you lose the money, I'll give it back to you. Hadn't heard from him. Like I said, he's a good guy. But we all have people like that in our lives. You hear what I'm talking about? Amen. You have to learn to deal with folk like that. And then there's the lost boy. Oh, yeah. This is the modern day Peter Pan. Flies around with pixie dust. They refuse to grow up. And instead, they try to get their friends and loved ones to take emotional and even financial care of them. I heard some folk go, hmm. Now, either they got <laughs> one of these in their family or they are one in somebody's family. <laughs> Amen. And you know what happens? If you will let people, they will talk you into writing them into your budget. I'm serious. And then on top of that, still want to raise every once in a while. Can you raise the amount you're giving me? It's just quite, you know, I'm, times are tough. The lost boy, never growing up, never. This is the perpetual child. They could grow up if they want to, but there's no compelling reason. You're taking care of them. If they grow up, they're gonna have to take care of themselves. And then number 11, and I'm just about done. There's finally the peacekeeper. This is not the peacemaker that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the peacekeeper. What's the difference? The difference is this. If you live very long in this world, you learn you have to, if you want peace, you gotta make it. Tell somebody, be a peacemaker. Would you do that? That's right. Peace doesn't just happen. You can't keep score. You can't keep count. If you're going to have peace, you gotta make it. You gotta be the one to initiate it. This is why Jesus said, if your brother has ought against you, go to your brother. You've got to take the first step. Amen. Now, what do I mean by then peacekeeper? That's what Jacob was. Let's keep the peace regardless of the cost. Yes, my daughter is defiled. She's been assaulted. Yes, the family's been shamed. Yes, yes, yes. But at the end of the day, don't make any noise. Don't make any waves. Don't rock the boat. The peacekeeper is the one who, regardless of the hell that's going on, still doesn't want to deal with it. And the reason that I'm telling you that this is important is because you can't fix what you don't confront. You can't fix it. Jacob, this is your little girl that's going to grow up someday. You need to protect her. And that brings me to the final toxic personality, and that's the entertainer. Y'all have any of those? I can tell some of you do. Amen. This is the person who tries to bring calm when there's disruption in a family and there's dysfunction going on or in a relationship or a friendship by cracking jokes. Now, that was cool when they were kids. Now they're grown and they come over at Thanksgiving and still want to tell their little corny jokes. Inappropriate. And they want to laugh and poke fun. You know what that was? It was a childish mechanism at work to keep the family from dealing with the stuff that was on the table at the time. And once again, I'd say in response to that, the same thing I said about the person that's a peacekeeper. If you don't deal with it, you don't fix it. And so regardless of the problem that's going on in the house, regardless, don't tell anybody. Don't go to school. Don't mention a word of it to church. Don't tell the neighbors. Don't tell the family. And all of the while, the family's dying on the inside. But put on your plastic smile and pretend everything's all right. What's that song Natalie Cole sings? Smile, though your heart is breaking. 
You know what I say to that? I say to heck with that. I'm going to fix what's broken. <laughs> Amen. In conclusion, what's the peace? Or what's the solution, rather? I gave it away just then. What's the solution? Follow peace with all men. Hebrews 13, pursue peace with everybody. This Christmas season, if I could wish one thing in your life, it's that this would be the most peaceful, wonderful, worshipful Christmas you've ever lived in your life. I would pray that you would know fulfillment and joy and that you could focus on what Christmas means rather than all of this stuff that goes on every day with coworkers and family and friends and neighbors. Don't get sidetracked by this stuff. Keep Jesus the reason for the season. Number two, not only follow peace, but as Hebrews 12 and 14 said, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which you will see the Lord. You don't see God without holiness or wholeness. What does that mean? You're going to bust tail wide open, you don't get saved? Well, it may very well mean that. But I'll tell you something else means you're not going to see God in worship either. As long as you're focused on all of the other stuff. Remember this, that whenever they took their, Peter took his eyes off Christ and focused on, when he saw, this, this is amazing. Scripture said when he saw the wind and the waves. How do you see wind? He began to sink. And that's what happens to us. And one reason that the Christmas holiday season, which ought to be among the two most powerful worship seasons of the year, often is among the most carnal it's because we get our eyes off of him. You don't, you don't see him. Amen. And number three, look to the grace of God. Number one, follow peace. Number two, pursue holiness. Number three, look to the grace of God. This is what the scripture says, verse 15 of Hebrews 12, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Let me paraphrase that. Look to the grace of God. What does looking to the grace of God mean? I'll tell you what it means. Looking to the grace of God. Don't focus on problems. Don't focus on all this other stuff. Don't get, focus on the grace of God. Now, now I gotta break that down for you where you can understand it, okay? But Colossians 2 and 10 says you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Complete. Now that means that whatever is missing in my life, he makes up for the deficit. I'm complete in him. If I'm at 60%, he provides the other 40. If I'm only 27%, you get it? He provides the other 73. He makes up what is missing. I am complete in him. That's why I look to the grace of God. Hello, somebody. One of the big problems that we make is that we look to friends, neighbors, loved ones to make us complete. And one of the definitions of a toxic relationship is when you're in a relationship that you have to have to make you whole. Ooh. What do you mean? I mean this, you need that person or that thing to complete you because your life is incomplete without them. Just look at your neighbor and say, I'm complete in Christ. Would you do that? And you know what happens if you don't learn that? If you don't learn that you're complete in him, you start looking for a wife to make up the other 40%. Or a husband to make up the other 35%. And on their best day, they're not God. And they can't make up what's missing in your life. You are complete in him. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Hello, somebody. Jesus is what this is all about. Complete. I'll give you another definition for the word complete taken from the Greek. The word complete means to be perfect, to be filled up, to cram full. That's the Hebrew, uh, rather the Greek in the Strong's Concordance. We are complete in him. Put that back up in uh, the screen if you would. We are complete in him, Colossians says. 
Let me paraphrase it. You are crammed full in him. Wow. Made perfect is another translation. That is powerful stuff. I'm filled up in him. This other stuff won't fill you up, but he will. Amen. This other stuff won't do you any good, but he will. And whenever you're whole, W-H-O-L-E, then you don't place unrealistic demands. And I told you that the secret to having satisfying relationships is simply this. Fix what's broken in you. In conclusion, this Christmas season, forgive those who have wronged you. Forgive them. Hebrews 12 and 15 said, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause you trouble. Forgive them. There are three people that I've wanted to meet in my lifetime. Two of them I've met. I'm not impressed with persons, personalities. I fly with so-called celebrities. You know, I see that all the time. But there are three people that have impressed me in the course of my life. There have been others, but some of them are going on to be with the Lord. But three that I, after I became an adult, I determined I would like to meet. One of those was Mother Teresa. One of those was Nelson Mandela. And one of those is Bishop Desmond Tutu. I've met Mother Teresa. I went to Calcutta, went to her mission there, met her. There in my office, there's a photograph taken by one of the former members of the church with me and another man of this church. We were standing, little Mother Teresa standing there. That was a high point in my life for me. Another, as I said, was to meet Nelson Mandela. Got to do that. Doresalam, Salaam, Tanzania. He was president of South Africa. Hadn't long been out of Robben Island, and actually prison. Hadn't long been out, freed from prison. And he became president. And he came to Dar es Salaam and stayed at the same Sheraton Hotel where I was staying that night. One of the doctors from the church was there with us and Nelson Mandela came in and greeted us. And that was a highlight. Bishop Desmond Tutu, last year we were in South Africa. Andrew, my son, we're staying at a Holiday Inn. Well, it used to be a Holiday Inn. It's now called Southern Sun. At the airport because we have a connection the next morning. And I go up to my room and guess who walks through the lobby? Desmond Tutu and Andrew gets to meet him. I'm joking. If I don't get to meet him, at least my grandson did. I close by telling you that those three people became great, not because they were different, not because they were special, but they learned something. And one of the things they learned in living life is you can't hold grudges. If anybody had a right to be, it was Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, right? But this is what he said. His funeral was today. And this is what I read just this week. Nelson Mandela said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. And I conclude right now.